As you stand in body or spirit, let us go before God's Word, as Jesus and the disciples likely would have, reciting what he called the Great Commandment, in Hebrew known as the Shema. If you'll follow after me in Hebrew, then we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning is part of what's called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It is in Luke 6, beginning in verse 27, where Jesus says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. One of my heroes is the late Fred Craddock, and toward the end of his seminary career, he participated in starting a church out in the, uh, in the mountains. It was called Cherry Log. And on their 10th anniversary, he reflected with the congregation back to the very first Sunday. He said, on the first Sunday, he said, I had two notes. And the first note was, we're going to meet monthly till we get, see if this thing gets off the ground. And the second note was, we will only turn away those people who Jesus would turn away. And with that, he went in and preached his first sermon on Luke 6, 27 through 38, love your enemies. When the sermon was over, a man who was there came and shook his hand and said, well, pastor, you're never going to get this church started. You've set the bar way too high. He said, you need to stop on this love your enemy stuff. This is way too hard. No one's going to join this church if that's the standard. And for the next several years, in fact, the man did visit, though he never joined. Would you? I mean, it's rather a hard and high standard. It's a high bar. Love your enemies. Do good even to those who persecute you. That's a, that's a tough gig. It's hard. It's hard for people to uh, do that. I was reading, somebody said that uh, of all the complaints that we might have about God, often our biggest complaint is not what God does to us, but what God seems to do for other people who don't deserve it. I remember reading years ago about a man who in his neighborhood, somebody actually won uh, a lottery uh, scratch-off ticket. And And he was probably the meanest nastiest guy in the block. And on the same block was a young family whose child had cancer and they were having trouble making, uh, being able to pay for the treatment. And yet the mean guy won the multi-million dollars. Our complaint sometimes is not God's mercy, but maybe to whom God shows God's mercy. 
Uh, it, it's, it's difficult for us to uh, accept the God who will be kind to those who aren't very kind. I remember when I preached on the prodigal son in my first church, when it was over, most everybody left, and one of the farmers was the last one. He waited for me, and he shook my hand, and he said, well, that's a fine sermon, Pastor, but I got to tell you this. If that were my son, we might throw a party, but first we'd have a little discussion behind the barn before the party started. I mean, it's hard, this this standard of being kind and merciful to the ungrateful. And if you think it's hard uh, for normal people, it's also hard even for people who spend their life studying Jesus. The story is told about a guy named David Flusser who was a Jew, but his expertise was studying the New Testament. And he, he taught in Israel. And because that was his expertise, a lot of the Jewish scholars didn't like him or take him very seriously. And so when one of his students went to study with another Jewish scholar, it didn't matter how good the paper was that he wrote, he got a bad grade, simply because his mentor was David Flusser, the Jew who happened to be studying Jesus. Well, this scholar who gave all the bad grades to Flusser's students sent one of his students to study with David Flusser for a semester. And his work wasn't very good, actually, and so the, uh, the preceptors, the assistants, came and brought it to Flusser's attention and said, you know, this guy that came over from the other professor, his stuff's not very good. It's not well written. It just, what should we do? What grade should we give him? And Flusser said, give him an A. And they said, well, you're kidding. I mean, you, you've seen the work. It just, it doesn't stand up. And Flusser's response was, give him an A. This I learned from studying Jesus. We would, in fact, love those, even who might be enemies are not treating us very well. So it's tough for people. It's tough for biblical scholars. It's tough for people in the Bible to kind of get that be kind to those who aren't kind to you and love your enemies. Remember Jonah? Jonah got sent on a mission to the worst, most wicked city on the planet at that time, Nineveh. And he was told to preach to them so they could repent. And you may remember the story, at the end of the story, they do repent, and Jonah's not happy about it at all. He says, God, I knew you'd do something like this. You're always being kind to the uh, ungrateful and the undeserving. And of course, the aforementioned prodigal son parable, remember the older brother? He doesn't want to go in and join the party. Why should you reward somebody who really hasn't acted uh, in a way that merits a party? This stuff is hard. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. As hard as it is to love your enemies, as hard as it is to try to be kind to those even who aren't kind for you, to do otherwise, to just do to others what they do first to you, is an even harder way to go. So let's start with your enemies. Uh, Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you don't, then you spend your life in bondage your enemies, always responding or not responding, reacting to what they do. And so not only do they victimize you once, but if you have to take your cue from what they do to you, then you're their victim a second time. If we always have to retaliate, the person who is hurting us or is mean to us is actually the one who's controlling our existence. We remain, you can be victimized, that happens in life, but to remain the victim is not a biblical stance. You don't keep drawing your behavior from the behavior of others who have uh, who have hurt you. Uh, There's a famous story, decades and decades old, told by the late Norman Vincent Peale, a a famous preacher in the 40s and 50s. He talked about a guy in his congregation whose parents were murdered. And uh, as a young man, he wanted to catch those murderers, so he became a policeman. 
And as a policeman, he signed up for extra shifts, working almost round the clock, hoping one day to run into those people who killed his parents, and he would exact revenge. A little bit like the mythical Bruce Wayne. Remember, Batman watches his parents die, and then, of course, makes that his crusade for justice. But the thing is, he volunteers for extra shifts. He's so uh, single-minded on finding these people and getting revenge that his own family life and eventually his career fall apart. It's just not wise to try to take your behavior from the bad behavior of those who've hurt you. It's attributed to Gandhi, though he claims he didn't, uh, we can't find it anywhere where he actually said it, but there's a famous saying that says, if you're always returning an eye for an eye, then eventually the whole world is blind. It just doesn't make good sense to say, I will treat somebody uh, who hurts me in the same way that they've hurt me. I will hurt them back. But Jesus also says it actually doesn't even make much more sense to say, even those who do good to me or who uh, I will treat them back in kind in that sense, in other words, I'll always have to pay them back. So Jesus says, in a sense, we're never taking our behavior from the behavior of others. It comes from another source. So imagine if you're always trying to keep up with people who do things for you or even with you. Have you heard the saying, keeping up with the Joneses? Uh, years ago, I read David McCullough's um, a book. You may have read it about the, about the Americans who lived in Paris in the late 18th and 19th century. Well, apparently, the, uh, and Wikipedia surprisingly misses this, apparently the saying, keeping up with the Joneses, started with a very wealthy American family in the 19th century Paris, the Joneses who spent like profligates. And the Americans who tried to keep up with them bankrupted themselves. It just made no sense to take your behavior cue from the Joneses, no matter how impressive it seemed to be. Uh, There's a wonderful book called Siblings Without Rivalry, and and the author talks about her two kids are playing in the backyard one time. So in the summer, she playfully tosses a piece of ice at one of them. So the other child said, well, I want some ice. So she tosses at, at, at them. And the first child said, well, I want more ice. And she's eventually tossing ice at both of them back and forth till they are actually blue, freezing in the summer, still demanding more ice. To try to keep up with the people around us and just treat them and do the things they do because they do them makes about as much sense as retaliating against your enemies. It usually doesn't work out very well. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago, I told you something I'd read that the number one freedom that most people in North America need is the freedom from the opinion of other people. That's, and, and Jesus gives you that opportunity to say, I'm not going to have you gear your life to the way others treat you, whether they treat you poorly or whether uh, they do things that are interesting and even good. You don't have to keep up with them. Who do you keep up with? Who's your behavior modeled after? And Jesus gives them the answer that our behavior is modeled after God that it is God's character that shapes our character. Now, this, I think, makes uh, kind of sense. We kind of um, follow who we worship. We see this even with young kids, you know, who will wear the brand of shoe that their favorite basketball player wears, or they'll wear their jersey on their back. You know, you start worshiping and idolizing, you pretty much, your behavior starts to follow often whom you idolize. So it's not surprising if we make God the center of our life, our behavior will start to flow from, uh, from the way that God acts. There's a, um, a wonderful book, big fat book as all of his books are, by James Mishner called The Source. 
and it tells the mythical story of a uh, uh, or the story of a mythical town in Israel from caveman days all the way till 1948. Well, in, in the early days, uh, pre-Israelite days, in this particular chapter, there's a story about a family, and of course, like everybody else in the village, they worship a false god who demands child sacrifice. And every family, each year to make sure there's good uh, uh, crops, has their name in the lottery in a sense. And their name is drawn. It is their turn to ensure good crops to sacrifice their child to death for this false god. So in this chapter, as Mishnah writes, um, the woman watches, the mother watches as the father takes the son and prepares to march him to the temple. Uh, The temple, not Jerusalem temple, but a temple for the false god to sacrifice this child. And with tears in her eyes, the mother looks wistfully and says this, if my husband had a different God, he'd be a different man. Our behavior follows from the God we worship. And if we are always retaliating or copying, we are worshiping someone other than the God of the universe. But you might say, God, that's a high bar. That's a high standard. God is so strict. And I would ask, really? Is that God? There's an interesting passage in the New Testament where Jesus says in Matthew, you must be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. In Luke, the same passage says, you must be merciful as your father's merciful. Now, here's the deal on this one. It goes all the way, all the way, all the way, all 11. It says, be holy, 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 God is holy. And, and, and the New Testament word holy, 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 put it into to, to, to Testament. They had an interesting, 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 interesting Greek world. The Jews understood in the Old Testament that God's holiness was God's compassion. It wasn't about never making a mistake. It was about that God always loved and compassionate and was compassionate, so we're supposed to be the same. Now, to the Jewish audience, which Matthew's written to, they got that already, and so they chose this word perfect. But they understand that God's perfection is God's love. It's not, it's not asking us not to make mistakes. It's asking us to be compassionate. But Luke writes to a non-Jewish audience, so he has to put it in plainer, I won't say English, Greek, and basically says, be merciful. That's what this means. It, we have this idea that God wants us to be perfect. Nothing is further than the truth. God wants us to care. That's what Leviticus 11's about. That's what Matthew's about. That's what Luke's about. That's God's character. God cares, so we care. And somehow we got this picture of a God who doesn't really seem to care about anything but us getting it right. I'm reminded of the legendary story of the late Paul Tillich, a famous theologian at a seminary in New York City. So he was often invited once he was like Times, you know, man of the year, theologian of the year, whatever, invited in the 60s to these cocktail parties. And they thought they'd trip him up, trip him up, trip him up. Like, I don't believe in, believe in, believe in, believe in. His stock response was, response was, response was, response God, you don't believe in. Even, even, even. Of course, they would describe, describe, describe God. Always, 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 always. Standards, nobody, 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 nobody. They'd go on and on. And when they finished, they'd kind of look at Tillich like, what do you think of that? And his response was always, well, I don't believe in that God either. Because that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, powerful indeed. But the main characteristic is the God of the Bible is compassionate and wants us to be compassionate as well. So how do we get that? How do we get free of the behavior of other people? How can we treat others in a more kind and loving manner? Maybe we could study more about it. I guess that could help. Maybe we could just 
screw up the willpower, you know, to do it and say, well, I'm going to count to 10 this time so I don't do something like that. That might help. But my sense is that typically these things are always done from the inside out. That if we will not be kind, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger until we've experienced that that's actually how God is in our life. That we need the experience of a loving God before we can imitate the loving God. Again, it reminds me of the late Fred Craddock who used to tell this story that one day there was a family out on a drive and, and uh, as they were on a drive, family of four, uh, they're on like a two-lane road and off to the side of the road, uh, uh, the kids noticed this, this shabby cat uh, standing there, look, looks, looks terrible, and, but they start screaming, Dad, Dad, look at that cat. It's going to get hit by, it, by a car. We need to rescue that cat. And, and Dad kind of looks and says, look, we're having a nice Sunday drive. Let's just keep going. Then they start screaming in the back seat, I can't believe Dad is so mean. That cat's going to get killed. He's going to die. It's going to be our fault. And, and Mom kind of looks at Dad like, you know, you better turn around. And so he says, all right, we were having a nice drive. He, turns around, goes back the side of the road and tells the kid where the cat's standing, don't get out of the car, the cat's got leprosy or something. So he gets a towel out of the trunk, gets ready to reach down and bundle up the cat and take it. And when he reaches down for the cat, the claws come out and the cat hisses at the man. He says, oh, come on, tiger. Wraps him up, takes him in the car and tells the kids, now don't touch him yet, he's probably got leprosy. But the kids do, they leave him in the towel, but as soon as they get him home from the towel, they put the cat in the, in the, in the, in the, to bathe him, they blunt, they blunt, they blunt, they feed him, feed him, feed him, feed suitable for fire, fire, fire. That mangy cat, 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 that angry cat, 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 cat. Weeks later, dad's in the reds and the reds and the reds and reading the paper in the evening, reaches down for the cat, and this time there are no claws, this time there's no hiss. This time, there's only the sound of a motor as the cat is purring. And Craddock would tell that story and say, is that the same cat? Yes. And no, he would say, just like none of us are the same person once we let God love us. My sense is if we want to take on the character of God, first we have to recognize and accept the love of God. God cares about us. Once we believe that, maybe we'll care about others. This morning,